2: Good evening and welcome tonight. The new threat to young Australians diagnosed with COVID, a $5 billion boost for those suffering in lockdown, an official AstraZeneca backflip, what the new rules mean for you, and escape from Manus Island. We meet the only man who broke out, inspired by a Hollywood TV show. But first, a 70-year-old man from the eastern suburbs of Sydney has died after contracting COVID-19. New South Wales recorded 89 new cases today. The majority of those are household contacts. 55 of them were in isolation throughout their infection. But at least... 30 people were infectious in the community at some point. 21 of those were out and about for their full infectious period. The Premier has repeatedly stressed that this is the number that must be reduced before health authorities can consider lifting Greater Sydney's restrictions. That number was slightly lower than yesterday, but it has been bouncing around for the past week. Serena Andaloro is at Sydney's first 24-hour testing facility in Fairfield. Serena, that testing site will no doubt get even busier with the new rules for people who want to travel outside the Fairfield area.
3: Yeah, and good evening to you. It is 11 o'clock at night and this is the line for the state's first 24-hour testing clinic. It goes all the way down the road. It snakes uh, through the back streets, around the block. Uh, and it is abundantly clear that people here in southwestern Sydney are taking this uh, deadly seriously. And from tom- from midnight tonight, they will be subject to the most severe health orders that we have seen. If you want to leave the Fairfield local government area, you need to be tested every three days, regardless of your of your symptoms and uh, you don't have to wait for those test results to return. Likewise, if you want to leave Greater Sydney to work, essential work in, um, in country in New South Wales, you need to be tested once a week. Now, we did see 89 new cases overnight. 64 of them were here in the southwest, with 21 uh, out and about in the community. Sadly, that 70-year-old man from the eastern suburbs did die,
2: really highlighting just how high the stakes are here. It's quite incredible that that many cars are out at this time. It's quite heartening to see Serena. And the New South Wales Health Minister today, he was pressed for an, a definition of an essential worker. Let's have a listen to his
4: response. James, you've asked that question in regard to um, what is essential shopping, what is essential work, a number of times. And what we've indicated is that to try and define that is, uh, is very challenging. In terms of uh, essential work, the employer and the employee would know whether that particular worker was essential to the particular circumstances.
2: Serena, they say they can't define what constitutes essential work.
3: Yeah, so they're saying they're leaving it up to businesses and individuals. Their argument that they can't make laws that uh, relate to every specific situation, they're hoping that people use their common sense. But they're also hoping that people pay attention to the intent and the spirit of the health orders rather than just the letter of the law.
2: Mm. OK, well, Serena Andalora in Sydney Forest, a very busy testing centre in Fairfield. Thank you. The Prime Minister has offered a billion-dollar lifeline for those struggling in Sydney's extended lockdown. Teaming up with the New South Wales Premier, he announced additional support to help businesses and workers survive up to eight weeks of lockdown. Network finance editor
5: Gemma Acton has more on this. Gem, how will individuals benefit? Well, once a lockdown has gone on for at least three weeks, the payments that go to them have been bumped up. So, $600 if you're working at least 20 hours a week. And if you're working between 8 and 20 hours a week, you'll get 375. Also, these payments will now be automatic, so you just need to apply once and they will come to you weekly. And this will be extended throughout Australia when lockdowns go for more than three weeks. Now, in this case, the New South Wales government has actually added some funds of its own so that not just people in lockdown areas such as Greater Sydney but anyone in New South Wales who can demonstrate that they have lost at least eight hours work a week will also be able to apply for these funds which is really a recognition that the lockdown pain spreads a lot further Mm. than just their lockdown areas. And what about businesses? What's designed for businesses? Well there was a big resistance to bringing back any form of job keeper but there will actually be support um, on the wage bill front so if you're a larger business you'll be able to get 40% of your payroll bill paid for. Uh, That's between, well, that's up to $10,000 a week. Uh, And really importantly, um, the philosophy of JobKeeper was keeping employers attached to their workers. And so they don't need to find a whole new workforce once lockdown ends. It's the same philosophy that underpins this. So you will have to hang on to your existing workers, full-time, part-time and long-term casuals, the same payroll that you had as of the 13th of July Now, for smaller businesses, there's uh, also help. Sorry, that help only applies to businesses that are earning annually of between $75,000 and $50 million Mm -hmm. who can demonstrate a 30% drop over a two-week period compared to 2019. Now smaller businesses had been left out prior to now but now businesses between $30,000 and $75,000 turnover will get $1,500 a fortnight and sole traders will be able to get $1,000 a week. So much broader support. Yeah that's important. Anything else on offer? Yes you probably remember that a big part of the first lockdown was help with rent at mm. uh, There's real incentives in this package to uh, get landlords, both commercial landlords and residential landlords, to offer some rent relief because they will be able to apply for land tax reductions. There's also $17 million going towards boosting mental health support, and that's across different age groups, uh, different communities from a cultural perspective, and different challenges people are facing. So many different organisations will be getting some support for that. Sounds positive. Okay, it does. Thanks, Jem. Thanks, Ange.
2: The Victorian government has accused Scott Morrison of acting like the Prime Minister for New South Wales in an extraordinary swipe at the new pandemic payments. A statement by a spokesperson tonight said New South Wales deserves every possible support, but, quote, Victorians are rightly sick and tired of having to beg for every scrap of support from the federal government. It shouldn't take a crisis in Sydney for the Prime Minister to to take action. We had had to shame the federal government into doing their job and providing income support for Victorian workers when we battled the Delta strain earlier this year. Georgia Love is live for us in Melbourne with more details. Georgia, a lot of reaction there to unpack.
6: There certainly is, and this state versus federal argy-bargy continues. Tonight, the Commonwealth did return serve, saying that if Victoria were to go into lockdown too, they would receive the same as Sydney is getting right now. They also said that Victoria received $4,220 per capita support through JobKeeper. That's compared to $3,684 per capita for New South Wales. But the difference is this isn't JobKeeper, this is a state-specific payment. That's what the Victorian Government is saying, that we've been left out to dry in the past. The lockdown that we had back in February, we received no federal government support at all. It seems like this is just the latest chapter in this every-state-for-itself world we've turned into uh, since COVID began, Ange.
2: Yeah, it seems so. And Georgia, what can you tell us about the contact-tracing efforts underway in Victoria today?
6: Well, thankfully, we've had no new exposure sites uh, since I updated you last night. We have, though, learnt more information about the removalists who came from Sydney to Melbourne uh, that made that incursion here with the Delta strain. So it's been revealed they did have a permit to travel and work in Melbourne, but it seems they did break some of the strict guidelines that were in place with that permit. Namely, they not only stopped but ate and showered at a busy service station. That means that one and a McDonald's that are also on a busy highway have gone onto the list of exposure sites.
4: I think they're being honest, I think think it's clearly a challenging situation um, for them as individuals. I've not not spoken to them myself Uh, and I can understand that there's any number of scenarios that that might be going through their heads. The most important thing for all of us, as we always say in these responses, the only thing we care about is the information so we can act upon it and put the public health response in place.
6: Now the other incursion that has nothing to do with the removalists is a family who travelled from Sydney home to Melbourne early last week. Three of those family members have now tested positive. They were meant to be in isolation for the full 14 days. Of course, Victoria has deemed Sydney a red zone. But it's turned out that one, at least one of the family members has left quarantine at least twice. We have Tier 1 exposure sites at a Coles and also at a service station from both Saturday and Sunday last week, meaning they have broken those restrictions. It is worrying, but of course uh, we do hope that now we've at least uh, contained this enough that it won't turn into another Melbourne outbreak. Okay, thanks so much,
2: Georgia. Australia's advisory group on vaccination has again updated its advice on the AstraZeneca jab, encouraging people under 60 who are living in an area with an outbreak to get the vaccine. Taylor Aiken is standing by in Canberra this evening. Taylor, what is the latest advice now on AstraZeneca? And you'd be forgiven
0: if you are finding it hard to keep up with this changing advice regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine. ATAGI, the group that advises the government on immunisation, today recommending those who live in an outbreak area, such as Greater Sydney, should bring forward their second AstraZeneca dose. Studies show that the vaccine is most effective if doses are given 12 weeks apart. But due to the risk of contracting COVID increasing in those hotspots, health officials now say the second dose can be received between four and eight weeks after their first dose. Shortening the time between the two doses does reduce its efficacy slightly, but experts say it is still enough to prevent a serious illness. That expert vaccine group also updating advice surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine for those aged under 60 years of age. They're now urging people of any age living in those outbreak areas who don't have immediate access to Pfizer to re consider getting the AstraZeneca vaccine instead. They say the risk-benefit balance has changed in those hotspot areas and the benefits of being vaccinated increasingly outweigh the concerns of developing serious side effects such as those rare blood clots. These new recommendations only in place in outbreak settings such as in Greater Sydney. For other areas the advice stays the same. So Ange, clear as
2: mud. Yeah, I guess the advice, talk to your GP. Probably the easiest. Thanks so much, Taylor Aiken in Canberra. And dozens of people in South Australia have been ordered into quarantine after those removalists from Sydney stopped at a service station in Taylan Bend. Anyone who was there between 5.20 and 7 pm on Friday, the 9th of July, is being ordered to get tested and quarantined for two weeks. A service station employee has reportedly been showing symptoms. And a Perth man will spend two months behind bars after breaking Western Australia's quarantine rules. The 53-year-old returned to WA from Brisbane during an outbreak last year. He did isolate at home, but was reported and later charged for having tradies come to his house.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
2: A stark warning from the New South Wales Health Officer today. The Delta strain of COVID has put otherwise healthy young Australians with no underlying conditions in intensive care. I'm joined by Professor Gail Matthews, the Head of Infectious Diseases at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Professor, thanks for joining us. From the last numbers that were made public, we have 14 people in hospital under the age of 35 of the people in ICU. One is in their 20s, another in their 30s, one in their 40s. Are you surprised by the number of young Australians in hospital and ICU?
7: Well I think we've Always known with COVID um, that young people can get sick. I mean, that's not not a surprise to us at all. And, you know, we've seen that data come from the UK and and the US and other places. Clearly, um, what we're seeing now is is proportionally more young people because they tend to be the more unvaccinated. And that might be why we're seeing um, uh, proportionally more younger people um, coming into hospital.
2: We know the Delta variant is more contagious. Is it more fatal than previous strains?
7: So there's no evidence actually that it's more fatal, um, but clearly uh, because it's more contagious, so you have far more many people infected, and so therefore you have potentially a far by, a far higher burden uh, on the hospital system just because the sheer numbers are greater, so you have more hospitalizations and obviously some of those obviously unfortunately will result in death. But I don't think we have any clear evidence yet that, that, that it's actually a, a more fatal virus.
2: You've been leading a research program into the long-term effects of COVID. More than a third of COVID patients at Sydney St Vincent's Hospital are still affected by the virus. What symptoms are they still living with?
7: So the symptoms of of what's called, you know, long COVID um, uh, generally uh, can be many. Uh, The common symptoms, though, are a a sort of persistent fatigue, a really debilitating fatigue that comes and goes that really can impact on young people um, and their ability to, to go about their normal lives. One of the things that is clear is that the the, the things that we've found that, that predict getting it, obviously being more sick at the, at the, at the time of, of your acute infection, those tend to be actually, they're, they're more likely to be male and more likely to have comorbidities, but then there's another sort of, sort of a separate group and a uh, finding that, that women are more likely uh, to have long COVID, and they tend to be, in fact, most people in our study were uh, managed in the community. They weren't particularly sick uh, at the time of their initial infection.
2: Does Australia need to look ahead and develop a strategy to manage patients who will have these long-term symptoms?
7: Yeah. Look, absolutely, we should be thinking about um, uh, about what we can do for people who who are suffering long COVID. Um, there's a lot of stigma, uh, and, and and really a lot of services are not geared up for them at the moment. We need to do more research into understanding what's driving it, because that can also give us insights into um, post viral syndromes of other kinds as well. So it, it's not just about COVID. It's actually broader than that. So uh, we really have to take this seriously.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight, Professor. Thanks. A Brisbane court has heard domestic violence allegations were levelled against James Switzer Glovich before he was stabbed to death in this city's Bayside area. Alex Lewis joins us live from Brisbane. Alex, police allege this man's former partner and her ex-boyfriend committed murder. What do we know?
4: Good evening, Ange. Uh, Ange, um, James Switzer-McGlover, the Supreme Court heard, was found with eight stab wounds lying in a pool of blood in his home in Wyndham West in 2018. His ex, uh, Emily Tracy, and the mother of his child, as as well as her new partner, Paul Moore, denied they murder him. The court heard that Switzer... McLover wanted to reconcile with Tracy and move in with her again, but suspected she was seeing someone else. Uh, the court heard that he was no saint and uh, had a history of drug and alcohol problems, as well as domestic, being accused of domestic violence in previous relationships. The defence lawyer, Mr Moore's lawyer, said. That uh, he did not dispute that his client had ended up murder uh, had ended up stabbing Switzer McLover, but told the jury that it would be their job to determine if there had been any intent um, in-, in regards to that matter. Um, the court heard that both uh, accused had. Uh, Gave conflicting accounts to police, um, and that Tracy had tried to fabricate fabricate an alibi. Dozens of witnesses are set to give evidence in the trial, which is due to run for three weeks. And
2: okay, thanks so much, Alex. Nine people are missing and eight have died after a hotel collapse in eastern China. More than 600 emergency workers have so far rescued eight people from the rubble. Authorities are investigating the disaster, but similar incidents have been linked to lax Chinese building laws and corruption. Cuba's president has blamed the US for mass anti-government rallies, saying protesters were paid. Thousands marched against food shortages and the rising cost of living, a move U.S. President Joe Biden says was brave. President Miguel Diaz-Canel condemned the U.S. for interfering, saying it has suffocated Cuba's economy with sanctions. And more than 50 people are dead after a fire inside an Iraqi hospital's COVID ward. Early reports suggest an oxygen tank exploded. Patients' relatives protested outside Al Hussein Hospital, where two police cars were set alight. In April, another oxygen tank exploded in a Baghdad hospital, killing at least 82 people. Javet Elam is the only person to have ever escaped from Manus Island, a story that sounds like it's straight out of Hollywood. In 2013, Javet fled his homeland of Myanmar, travelling to Jakarta before boarding a boat with other asylum seekers bound for Australia. Instead of receiving refuge, he was sent to Christmas Island before being moved to the infamous Manus Island Detention Centre, which he compares to a horror movie. After three and a half years, he escaped, using tricks from the hit TV show Prison Break, posing as an interpreter and buying a plane ticket to Port Moresby. Six months travelling on foot, boat and plane, JVET eventually found a home in Canada where he was finally granted refugee status. Today he is a political economy student at the University of Toronto. And he joins me from Toronto. Thank you, Javet. This is such a remarkable story, an incredible journey, which a lot of people would find hard to believe. How do you feel looking back on it?
8: Uh, sometimes I find it hard to believe myself looking back, especially during the process of this whole writing. Looking back, oh, I actually went through all of this. I have to take a pause and take some deep breath just to continue. It's just sometimes unreal to me.
2: You've described Manus Island Detention Centre as a scene of a horror movie. Can you describe the conditions and the treatment that you lived through?
8: The conditions were beyond words. Like I could hardly find like enough words to describe the conditions and all the other aspects of tortures that come along with, including the physical and mental torture. One of the biggest examples I can think of is like not having a timeline to your detention. Mm-hmm. It is indefinite detention. You don't know whether you will ever be going to be out of there. Some of my friends are still in the detention system across Australia and uh, in PNG as well still like it is nine years now
2: considering where you were this escape plan it was really quite audacious and the key was getting off Manus Island, was pretending you were an interpreter how did you pull that off how did you come up with the idea to do it like that
8: the airport um, was also patrolled by the guard who the same guard who regularly patrol um, and guard like the detention so there's no way any detentions and any prisoners would be able to leave the center um, via the airport without notice. And in fact, there were a few examples who were actually turned back from the airport after they were being noticed that they were actually from the detention. So the plan was dem- to find a demographic that I would fit in, which was at the time, um, one of the cohort was interpreters, the other cohort was um, health worker. And I found interpreters was a much more easier um Logistic wise, to manage uh, to be able to camouflage uh, in that way.
2: You must have had nerves of steel. What was going on in your body when you were getting on boarding that plane to get over to Port Moresby for your escape?
8: It was, um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I I, I I explained it to the T in the book, uh, but a lot of the time, almost every turn came with a surprise, and I have no idea how to. Proceed with it. It was like uh, almost a panic, but I somehow learned to stay calm and just hope for the best. And sometimes I just say to myself, so "It's like a fight or flight reactions to from my body," and I just go with it. I had no idea it will ever work, but somehow it worked
2: incredible and then you just spent months uh foot boat plane with no money i read when you first landed in the airport in canada you actually confessed to the immigration officer that you had a fake passport and you told him your story and he felt so sorry for you he went out and bought you subway how different is your life now how differently did canada receive you than australia
8: um it was actually more than what i had expected coming here i actually mentally prepared myself to go through under the, some sort of similar system um, that I went in the in Australia. And then like when I was treated so differently and I received such a, almost like a welcoming sort of messages from everywhere I go, from department to the Immigration and Refugee Board hearings, it is a complete shock to me that the same process could be so different. And I just felt guilty for those, my friends, who are still in the detentions and for those who are still Mm -hmm. somehow suffering the consequences of the detention.
2: Australia's use of detention centres has recently uh, come to light again because of the Bila Wheeler family as someone who has lived it firsthand. What is your message on the treatment of asylum seekers?
8: There are better alternatives, there are better ways to treat and when you detain someone, for example, in the Belov family, and also this this, this case in the um, in the Manus, you are actually taking off the prime years of their life from these kids and from these people. You are essentially taking off like their years where they should have been learning a lot of things that any normal kids would do, and instead they are learning probably some um, guards' movement and loud prison uh, gates banging. Um, those where especially um, very common in Christmas Island.
2: Well, thank you so much for sharing just a small part of your remarkable story tonight, David.
8: Thank you. Thank you.
2: And you can read more about Javed Elam's incredible story in his memoir, Escape from Manus. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets.
5: Thanks, Angela. Asian markets picked up on the strong lead from Wall Street overnight to push higher today. Our local market, however, was one of the only two in the region to miss the positive session. The ASX finishing just one point lower. A lot for US traders to keep their eyes on tonight with the latest inflation data set to be released, alongside earnings for some of the world's biggest companies. JP Morgan and PepsiCo are both set to report tonight. Oil prices are back on the march higher after a rocky week, though still a few dollars short of their recent three-year highs. Meantime, the Aussie dollar has steadied, but depending on tonight's US inflation report, we could see some movement in the hours ahead. Ange. If you're watching the sky tonight, you may have been lucky enough to catch one of the
2: cosmic events of the year as Venus paired up with Mars. The evening star and the red planet, the planets of love and war, appeared in a rare embrace for a few hours. Let's bring in astrophysicist Sarah Webb. Sarah, why are astronomers so excited about this moment?
9: I think especially for um, amateur astronomers or anyone who has a telescope or even binoculars, I think it's such a beautiful thing that you can look with your own eyes through binoculars or a telescope from your backyard and see two major planets um, within the one field of view. So I think it's really exciting for the wider uh, community that's interested in astronomy.
2: Yeah. What's the meaning behind it, do you think?
9: So this uh, type of event happens almost annually, and it's when the planet's alignment uh, meets up lovely. So here from Earth, it looks like they're very close together, even though they're separated by millions and millions of kilometres. Um, but what I really, really love about this event is that it ties back to the traditional Aboriginal owners of this land and that thousands of years ago, um, specifically the Ujali people of the north, uh, northern New South Wales used to tie this type of event to meaning a type of God was looking down From them in the sky, and I think it's incredible that you know thousands of years later we can look up, see the same event, and then tie our own meaning to it as well.
2: Yeah, what a lovely thought. Now, if we missed it tonight, will we be able to spot anything tomorrow?
9: So, if you missed it tonight, tomorrow they will still be fairly close—not as close as they were tonight—but definitely before uh, before eight PM. Go out after the sun sets, have a look at the sky towards the moon, and you should spot the two bright planets. Ooh.
2: Now, in other space news, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn may be key to finding
9: alien life. I love these headlines. Say it so. Me too. These are some of my favourite type of research that happens out there because we know that the moons of Jupiter and Saturn are incredibly diverse. Many of them have volcanoes. A lot of them have these geysers with liquid water coming out of them. And one such moon called Enceladus um, recently has had a study simulate if biology if biological life could actually produce the methane that we see in these gases from from our observations and it turns out theoretically yes microbes could be producing this methane so even though it's not a confirmation of life it is a tantalizing little hint of something that is sure to be explored in the near decades we like a little hint okay thanks so much sarah thank you
2: thank you for your company this evening from the team here at seven news that is the latest i'm angela cox good night